0: Not proud, but that was me.
1: everyone and welcome to the Bubble Hour where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm Jean McCarthy, recovery author, blogger, and podcast host. I've been chronicling my adventures in life after alcohol since my first day of sobriety nearly 10 years ago in my blog Unpickled and in the books that I write. I tell my stories there and I hold space for your stories here. And today I'm holding space for Sean McCann and Andrea Aragon, the husband and wife team behind the recovery memoir, One Good Reason. Sean McCann rose to fame as a founding member of the multi-million selling folk group, Great Big Sea, which my Canadian listeners will recognize as the lovable rogues with songs everyone knew the words to and we shouted from the dance floor. For two decades, they reigned as our country's biggest party band but all of that performing and partying allowed Sean's alcoholism to flourish in plain sight. He drank to cope with the long buried pain of childhood abuse by a trusted family priest, a secret he kept until 2014 when he shared his truth and began using his music and stage presence as a mental health advocate. One good reason includes the parallel narrative of Sean's wife, Andrea Aragon. Her balancing insights give this memoir extraordinary look into the nuanced and complex effects of addiction on the family. Please enjoy my conversation with Sean McCann and Andrea Aragon. Okay, well, Sean and Andrea, thank you for being guests on the Bubble Hour. I'm so excited to talk with you and share your story with the listeners of this show. I've just finished reading your book and I'm wiping the tears from my eyes and feeling my heart pound. I feel like I've made two friends for life just reading your words and and getting to know your story. It couldn't have been easy to write that book. So, first of all, I want to thank you for not just the effort, but the courage that it takes to tell your story. And my first question for you is about the whole process of writing a book together as a married couple that have been through a lot. Did you each write your story separately and then weave them together in a book? Or did you sit down together and write each chapter from your own perspective?
2: Well, it started off um, with me writing a book, and I spent about a year writing my story and at the end of that year and that was a hard thing to do but at the end of the year we read it and um i just didn't feel like it was the whole story it didn't feel complete to me it said everything was truthful and it was you know it was difficult but it wasn't all there and then andrea had been keeping a journal in real time uh during a lot of the events uh, certainly in our relationship and um she showed me a couple of those uh, journal entries And, you know, they they were very eye-opening and sobering for me. That was the other side of the story. And uh, so we decided to write the book together so we'd have a comprehensive look at at what the truth really was from every angle. And um, that proved, you know, that that had its own challenges. But at the end of the day, I don't think you can tell a story of a marriage from one side of that marriage. So I'm really glad we... uh, we chose to go that way and so it took an extra year to get all to get it all sorted out. It cost us a few publishers who didn't really envision couldn't see the potential of a bestseller with two voices in a book, but I'm, I we stuck to our guns and I'm really glad that we did because I think now we have the whole truth uh from all sides.
3: Yeah, I think um that how that actually came about, I don't know if you recall this, Sean, but he showed me a particular um a particular chapter that he was writing and his memory of it. And then I was like, whoa, there's a whole lot more to what happened that night because I had written down our conversation from that night verbatim. And I let him read it. And it was the first time that he had read what it did to me, what that night did to me, that particular instance, you know, it it affected him and it, and it shocked him and it, he didn't, it was because he didn't know, right? Like it was, it was, whatever the event was, he didn't have any recollection of it because he had been drinking and I was sober, so um, I think the way that Sean describes it now is like a victim impact statement. It hit him like that.
2: That's what it read like. And again, you know, you well, you know the facts of his story, but as an alcoholic and as a drunk person, you, you're not capable of of really comprehending. Certainly not in the moment, what the consequences of your actions really are. And it's one thing to look back at something five years later, but to to actually have the living document, the the her words that very night mm-hmm. on the page, it doesn't get more real or more raw than that. And that's what we wanted to do with this book. We didn't want to shy away from from things that were difficult because it is a difficult thing, and um, you got to start from there. You know, you have to acknowledge that.
3: So what he did is that so Sean had this this document, this basically the finished book, and I would. I would take it chapter by chapter and add my part to it. This is what happened in my world on that same event. So it's it's the same event, looking at it through two different lenses. And I think that's you know not only what happens in a marriage, but certainly what happens when um, you're a person living with an addict, and even a recovering recovering addict, because we go into those chapters too. For me, it was letting everybody know that it's not just the addict that goes through the crisis. You know, it's everybody in their orbit. And I was in Sean's orbit. And so was, so were our boys at the time and they were very little, but um, you know, it affects us all. And I think sometimes we all get tunnel vision with our own stories and how it affects me and only me. And I just felt, we both felt really passionate about really having a big full circle on the story.
2: Yeah, I mean, we don't live in vacuums. We don't live. Yeah. you know, we wanted to address the consequences on a familial level as a couple, and I think we got th- we got through that. That was that was hard, and that oh. took a long time as well. To yeah, really hard to um, to get through that on a personal level. But I'm glad we did.
1: Well, it strikes me as something that would be particularly challenging and maybe not advisable too early <laughs> <laughs> in the healing oh, process. We're divorced <laughs> now. <laughs>
2: We're no longer we married at this okay. point, but I mean, it was. It
1: was That's long- the next book. <laughs> I really think that it it would have the potential to be divisive at certain stage in the healing process. But you would have to get past the instinct of wanting to protect yourself and shape your image. Did you keep the reader in mind and the the message in mind? What did you focus on to to take that higher ground up? Honoring the truth and honoring the big picture versus protecting yourselves.
2: Well, there's many pages that that we didn't include um, and anecdotes and stuff. We tried to at least tell the story from to a point. There is a message here, and that and the message is that no matter how bad things get, if you don't give up, you can be successful. And uh, we eventually kind of focused on from both our lives how we came together, what we lived through, and how we survived it and came out the other side. And, you know, its it does deal with some heavy subjects, but the book is ultimately about hope. And that's what we wanted to get to. You can't, you know, hopefully no one reads the first half of our book and puts it down. Lord, no. Hopefully they stick with it till the end. <laughs> <laughs> because it does have a happy ending. And we're not divorced. We're still married. For, for today anyway. <laughs>
3: One day at a time, time right? The <laughs> pandemic might really put us over dead.
2: I'm now. on a day to day. Now I go day to day. Just <laughs> I never really know. I'll be here tomorrow.
3: No, but I think he's right because we we did have you know the over the overall goal of the book was to provide hope because you know one of Sean's favorite lines is if the guy from Great Big C can get sober, certainly you can get sober. You know, being from the biggest party band in Canada. And going from that guy who was the biggest partier in that band uh, to the guy that is sober and through all the stuff that we went through, we just we we wanted to provide a little bit of light in the darkness of recovery, because while it's great being in recovery, it's really, really, as you know, hard work.
2: Yeah, no one had more access to amazing booze and drugs than I did. And no one was more encouraged to to uh, indulge. That was the brand we sold, and people loved it. And when it came time, when we finally decided that this was not the healthy place to be, it was really hard for me to to turn it around and walk backwards through that. Uh, and again, it's, uh, but it can be done. And people always ask me, you know, how did you do that? How do how do I do that? Is what they mean. And uh, the, you know, there's no real secret to this. The the answer is really just perseverance and what just, works just whatever you you will find something that works for you and whatever that is, it is doesn't matter that's you got to run with that but persistence is the key and um you know you just you fail and you try and you you just keep you keep trying you fail to to till you succeed i mean that's a rule of business isn't it <laughs> I think now given the stock markets the way they go but it's true because I've lost a lot of friends who, in the industry who who never who never made it and it just breaks my heart every time because I do think that everyone's capable of recovery. I don't think there's anyone that's excluded from that potential. And um it's just hard work, but with every great challenge there's always a there's always a great reward.
3: Yeah, writing writing this book was really hard for us to to actually relive a lot of those memories and and really delve deep into them. But I think we both Sean's been doing um a lot of what he calls musical keynotes and after his uh speeches or keynotes, he always has a line of people coming up usually disclosing to him about some trauma that they've had um or some secret that they've kept. And he would, you would see these people be physically lighter after they've talked to him, just because they could tell their secret and share it with somebody. And and so no matter how hard it got for us to write this book, knowing that that was our end goal to be able to provide that kind of hope in the end, it, it just made it that easy, that much easier.
2: It's great encouragement when you, when you know you can have a positive effect on someone's life, when you know you can change someone's life and, and relieve them that makes you feel better yourself. Like doing good feels good. You know, it makes me realize too. I mean, I, we talk about it, but it makes me realize that I'm not the only person this happens to. I'm not the, you know, I won't be the first, I won't be the last, but, uh, you know, there's, we all have our thing. And, uh, as long as we remember that we're all connected, then we can work it out together.
3: Yeah. Not being alone was a huge deal. Not feeling alone, because when you start feeling like you're the only one going through something, you start feeling hopeless and so that was that was another point of the book is to be like look we're all going through something and and it can get really really bad and really desperate um but you're not alone and it's a, that's a really powerful thing to recognize i think it was for me anyway
2: yeah and especially for addicts who uh you know when i when i first sobered up as you remember me to recall i My phone stopped ringing, so I was alone. (laughs) You know, you you are you are put in a you are socially isolated. You have to change your circle of friends.
3: We had to move.
2: We had to move. Well, we lived in St. John's, which is a very uh, uh, drinking is ingrained in the culture and has been for 500 years. It's a great town to visit, especially if you want to get your party on and stuff. It's got beautiful country, Mm -hmm. but if you're an alcoholic, it's a pretty tangly spot. It's either if you're an alcoholic and you live in St. John's, you've either won the lottery or you're about to lose big time and uh, I was a little bit of both and I got out just in time I think we make these big changes in our lives because they're necessary and uh, so ultimately at the beginning you feel this acute isolation you work your way through it and what I I remember one an an old alcoholic said to me earlier on he said better friends ahead just don't give up and you'll find them and it's true you know but you got to make big changes. I left a band. I left an income. I left my job. I left a lot behind because the alternative was destruction. So it's you, so
3: hard. It's, it was, I can't even like going backwards. Maybe you can relate to this too, Gene, like going backwards, thinking about how hard it was going through that, and those initial years of recovery. It is so hard. It's so much work and it's constant and it's daily. And you sometimes you don't think you're going to make it and it's, oh, but it's so worth it the the end the payoff in the end
2: yeah and you, you you remain vigilant i mean i feel pretty pretty strong now like i don't i don't doubt myself at all like don't have these challenges of confidence but the pandemic it's has been quite a challenge and so, you know it's got there's been a couple of times where it not my confidence was thing but i wonder if you're new to recovery how hard it is if you just started recovery in January, <laughs> like how, yes. what a year it's been for you to start. So stress is something we all share, you know, and, uh, and, you know, we, we develop our own coping mechanisms. And uh, what I had to do is change my social circle right away. I had to change so much and find new things to do. So I I don't drink anymore, but I, I run every day. I kayak, I, I'm in the woods as much as I can be. I'm with my dogs. I make music. You replace negative things with positive things, and eventually you fill yourself up again, and there's lots to do again, and there's lots of people to talk to.
1: One of the most powerful aspects of recovery is landing in our authenticity. And as I read your book, it really struck me how... You know you were on stage and living a life that those of us watching from the outside thought, "Man, those guys haven't made, and they're so great and they're having so much fun and you know it's like the life of the party is is crying inside, and when you took your power back and spoke your truth and and really started healing not just on the inside but also out loud, that is a whole different way of living and It's something you thought all up to that point. (laughs) So it was really dismantling a way of life that worked until it didn't work and living differently going forward. The book illustrates really how hard that was. But what stood out to me is that the relationships with your bandmates didn't survive, but the marriage did. So it seems to me that one had to have a footing in reality and the other one didn't is that how it feels did you feel like this this has the potential to heal and the other one was too hollow to heal what what made what makes some relationships work when we start being real when other ones fall apart
2: yeah i know you're a singer songwriter yourself so you, you've probably been in bands and they're not easy <laughs> they're volatile outfits it's like being married uh, in my case to three other dudes you know it's <laughs> So in 20 years time, that that would be, you know, surviving that long is is actually quite an accomplishment in that industry. Mm-hmm. But I think in our case, too, we we did start as friends, but we, we quickly built this kitchen party brand. And, you know, when you that that was basically what we sold. We sold drinking songs and we were really good at it. So when I sobered up and I was on the bus for, you know, the last tour for 18 months sober and i regret that now because that was that led to some hurt feelings right because i really was going against the brand and uh, i understood that but i thought friendship could be stronger than that, that 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 the friendship would over would understand that and be compassionate to that and that wasn't the case and what what i learned was that we weren't so much friends as we were business partners and uh we were united not in not in in a kind of a camaraderie way, but in a, we were tied to a bottom line. And that was by far the most important thing. And that didn't help me because I was trying to achieve an authentic self. And honestly, at a certain point, if you try to base your recovery on truth, which is the only thing that works, then anything that's not true doesn't work. So I had no choice but to get off the bus and I don't regret it at all. I wish, I wish things hadn't ended that way. And I wished, you know, people, I I wish we all had uh, better conversations at the time and tried to understand each other or talked it through. But again, it was maybe a function of being on a bus together for 20 years, which you may or may not know is not that glamorous anyway. (laughs) The bus wasn't that hard of a thing to leave. (laughs) It brings some brevity to this conversation. The bus was 10 dudes camping. Gross. You know, cause I, I'm not going to talk too much about the bus, but it's sm- it smelled a lot like ten dudes camping. So anyway, and
1: definitely uh, the the book dispels any illusions <laughs> of of luxury on the road. It is it is hard work to be a touring band, and I can understand why it's work hard, play hard because it, it's not an easy life, and especially. So when you're carrying, you know, wounds and trauma and, and trying to mask them.
2: Yeah. And well, we worked hard for years to build this drinking reputation. And reputations yeah. are heavy things to, uh, to carry after you build them. Until up to. But if that's what you're selling, you know, it didn't go over well when I was changing mine you know, and went the other way.
1: Well, do you think your bandmates really understood that it was a matter of life or death for you? Or did it just feel like betrayal to them that you would sort of deny the brand or, you know, change the rules? I think a
2: couple of things happened. I mean, I I think they thought I was going to fail again. I, you know, I tried it before and failed. And I don't think, I thought they were just waiting for me to fall off the wagon. They certainly didn't. uh, I mean, I sobered up, the bus didn't. So it really was, it it was really difficult to, um, to be sober in that situation, uh, when you know the booze was always around, so and that that just led to hurt feelings. So like that was, you know, what a what a an, a, an addict in recovery really appreciates is support, <laughs> and it's hard to mm-hmm. overcome that once that's not there, because you're forced to find it somewhere else. You know, so there's a lot of pain there, and it's a lot. You know, still still ongoing. It's not it's not gone away. Yeah,
3: a lot of it was just never talked about. You know, the the family dynamics. Uh, In some families, I mean, certainly my family had it growing up, where you just don't talk about things and everything's fine. We just don't bring it up. It'll be okay. I don't ever recall you talking to me about a serious conversation that you had with your bandmates about your drinking problem and what led you to drink.
2: No one on the bus wanted to talk to me about me sobering up or being in recovery or why I drank, and that wasn't that wasn't it. And to be fair, if the, the path we've chosen, Andrea, for the last almost decade now, because I'll be ten years sober, yeah, twenty twenty one.
1: Congratulations.
2: If thank you. If I uh, if I've written this book while on the bus, I'd be fired. <laughs> you know, like it's not. It goes against brand. Yeah. yeah. This is not what we sold. This is the opposite of that. Yeah. So it makes sense that I'm not there.
3: Yeah, I mean, you did change the rules.
2: I'm the one that changed. And this is why I'm able to accept it. Is like, okay, you guys kept doing what you were doing. I'm the one who changed. I have to accept that that's the case. Just because I'm going to change doesn't mean everything else is. And they made it very clear to me that everything else was not. So I had, you know. They were drinking
3: Pepsi and you wanted to drink (laughs) Coca-Cola.
2: I get it. It was was more like it was rum, not not Pepsi. Great.
1: But you know, this, this almost goes back to something that, Andrea, you write early in the book. When you call a friend, you know, as a teenager, uh-huh. you call a friend in a moment of crisis. And you wrote that you had that experience of feeling her see you and yep. that it was that being seen. No matter how many times you you went were going through crisis and hiding it, the act of allowing someone to see you was shifted things hugely for oh, you 100%. And to me that that is that rings true of codependency of like nothing is real until someone else experiences it for it's not enough right. for me to experience it someone else has to experience and i have to see myself reflected in their eyes in order to make it real.
3: Right. Yeah, i just i think that um i think that the 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 inability for that family if i could call it the band, the family to talk and to empathize and I really mean empath, have empathy and walk a mile is, is a big, huge downfall. And I don't, it's not specific to that family. It happens Mm -hmm. in many, many families. And just, you know, when my friend saw me or I saw her seeing me, just to know that you matter, that carries so much weight in a family. And again, your family, that family can be anything, can be a band, can be your nuclear family, can be your friends. And it helps you heal just a tiny, tiny bit and recognize that I matter enough to that person to
1: matter enough to me. This comes back to connection, doesn't it? And I think it is mm. the power of story because when we hear someone else's story and and we hear a bit of ourselves in it, even if it's a famous musician who, you know, we know my life is not anything like that. And yet I'm you and you're me. And I hear my story and you and you hear your story and me. And suddenly we're not alone. But it takes the courage to tell that story. That story you spend a lifetime protecting. You chose to release this book during a pandemic. (laughs) Not the ideal time, can't go on. Maybe not a great business decision. No
2: (laughs) hindsight, we probably, uh, (laughs) yeah,
1: we thought we were just
3: out of commission for a month, yeah, (laughs) didn't we? All I
2: really, totally, and
1: I understand,
2: (laughs) (laughs) but we also thought that it might do some good too. Like, we we lost, we right away lost our national tour, all these. We planned for a year on how to release the book. We had all kinds of cool things to do together, which would have been awesome. And And to uh, reach
3: people, which was the point.
2: (laughs) And to be together alone, which would have been awesome.
3: Oh, right. So we
2: all have our motivations. But we all, yeah, we wanted, we thought it could have a positive impact uh, on people's lives when they were stressed right out. And it would be this beacon of hope. And people did, you know, the book did hit the bestseller list a couple of weeks and it was which was great, you know.
1: Congratulations! Thank yeah, and,
2: great. and uh, but I, you know, I do think it's been lost in. Um, we, we, I don't know what we're going to do because the pandemic is still not over. <laughs> <laughs> Here we are, almost a year after the release of a book, still going on, and uh, we're still waiting to start our national tour. So who knows what what will happen? And uh, you know, but hopefully, it, hopefully, it has has changed people's lives during a hard time. You know, I know we've gotten lots of great feedback, personal feedback. We know we've had a positive effect. We know COVID may have prevented the book from reaching more people, but the people that it has reached during the pandemic are the people that really needed to read the book.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we
2: hear that every single day.
3: Yeah. And I think to go, to go to go back to your point, Jean, I think that, you know, talking about connection and hearing people's stories and seeing yourself in their stories. One of the most powerful stories that Sean tells is um, when he actually disclosed the reason that he started drinking and disclosed his abuse. And he was able to do that because, and I should let Sean tell the story, but I'm not going to let him do it. <laughs> I do speak for him most of the time after. all. Um, but he saw somebody get up before him and it was giving a little five minute speech and disclose about his abuse. And he didn't, why well, Sean, you tell it, you tell it in much better, better prose.
2: Now you want me to go now? <laughs>
3: Yes, she can edit that out, for God's sake.
2: <laughs> I, I insist that you do not edit that part out. <laughs> um, no, I mean, it helped. It did. You were talking about Polly O'Byrne. talking about Polly, yeah. Polly O'Byrne uh, was also a survivor of sexual assault. And uh, he spoke in front of me, and he spoke so honestly and plainly. And, uh, you know, I was going to speak after him about recovery. I'd been in recovery uh, all of two years, I think, at that mm-hmm. point. And I was eager to talk about the addiction and, you know, surviving the bus and all that. But when I saw him get right down to the truth, uh, you know, this was the thing I feared the most. I was still determined to carry my secret. That was my problem. And, I, you know, I always thought that I would burst into flames and suffer greatly. And he, he didn't do that. He didn't explode. He, in fact, looked better for it. He looked stronger. He looked way happier when he sat down than when he got up. And, it, you know, I just saw what was capable and it just dispelled my fear enough for me to, to to follow suit and to just spit it out and get it done. And that was a game changer for me, because what I do know for sure is that people drink and use drugs for reasons. And if you don't get at that, if you don't get down to the core truth about why you're behaving this in this self-destructive way, you might be able to have times of recovery where you're sober for bits, of, but that problem won't go away. Problems don't solve themselves and denying they exist only leaves them there for them to come back again, you know, with a vengeance. So I'm really lucky. I don't think I'd be sober now if I didn't actually have that experience.
3: Right. And so to my point,
2: (laughs) did I tell it wrong? (laughs)
3: You told it perfectly exactly how (laughs) I wanted it told. Thank you. Um, Is that watching somebody else be vulnerable helps us recognize I can do this too. Again, another theme, kind of that we wanted to put, that we hope got shown through in the book. Mm-hmm. Just being vulnerable is okay. You won't, you know, explode into a fiery ball, or you won't crumble because you're stronger than you think.
2: It takes real strength and bravery to become vulnerable.
3: Yeah,
2: okay. uh, it takes a lot of uh, a lot of um, courage to to uh, to face your demon, like and and really deal with it. Um, it's far easier. To not do the, that hard work and to skip over the hard bits and uh, and just pretend that's that you 're going to be fine, and for again for you might be fine for a year or two or three or five, but i don 't believe you'll be fine forever until you actually uh, address the the, the the core the core of where you 're coming from, mm-hmm. why it started mm-hmm. in the first place
1: so the drinking or addiction is really a symptom of trying to cope with trauma and, and had, had you not talked about it, or, you know, if we don't heal, heal that core trauma, we might be able to stay sober, but it'll, the issue will come out in some other way, right? I mean, there's always 100. We call it whack-a-mole sometimes, you know. Especially for women, there's a lot of overlap between uh, an eating disorder and addiction, or gambling disorder, or or love addiction, and you know, so there's there's often process addictions that go hand in hand with physical addiction because they're all different band-aids over the bullet hole, and and until we start addressing that core wound, it's really hard to To change how we live, otherwise we're just sort of learning a new dance instead of learning to stand strong. Andrea, I was really touched when you wrote about talking to a therapist and, and dealing with you know your role mm-hmm. in the relationship and understanding you know what your choices were at mm-hmm. when you got to a crossroad. That was that was a really touching segment to read because I would say that if you sat around and told your story to your girlfriend, they would easily say he's a jerk. He doesn't deserve you. You know, <laughs> this, you're, oh, yeah. you're blameless. I know I had plenty of that, before, and but, yeah, <laughs> and and it's <laughs> what we do for one another out of out of loyalty. But but really, your healing couldn't start until you took your power back too. Some marriages make it, some don't. Do you think that is the key to building back together is to, is to both sort of take a stand and, and heal on your own and then work together? How does it do? Would you, would you dare to give any advice? (laughs) No. Um, Sorry. Uh,
3: Of course I would give advice. I, I love to give advice. Not, not all of it is good. I can only go from my own experience. And after years and years of, you know, being an enabler with my father, I think as women in particular, we like to make everything okay and just smooth everything over. So I was, I was practiced at that and really great with that. I had to take a real hard look at myself. And obviously I had my own eating disorder issues and uh, self-harm issues, as I talk about in the book. I don't think there's any way that you can be a successful, in a successful partnership Unless you you don't have to love yourself, but at least you can like yourself, because I think loving yourself is a really hard step, and at almost fifty years old, I'm just starting to get there now, and I still have days of self, self-loathing. I could never ask Sean to walk through the fire that he had to walk through in order to be truthful and authentic if I wasn't willing to do it myself. And that in an, that work, that parallel work that we had to do ourselves helped us be stronger individuals which helped us truly rediscover each other like we we knew each other as drunks you know because i was a heavy drinker also not as not to his degree and then as roommates um while he was still drinking and i was help when i was raising the kids so once he got sober and once we started going through our work to get you know working through our stuff together not together separately rather we had to decide if we liked each other again you know, like who's this person now? And so that that work could have never been done on on us as a couple if I would if I didn't get straight with myself and start getting rid of the self-loathing that I had. So yeah, that's that's the long answer to
1: your question.
2: And now <laughs> we're perfect.
1: We're just, now you're perfect. just a perfect couple. We love each other all the time. That's all we do. <laughs> I often think that my marriage is just so much stronger with me as a person in recovery. And ironically, I'm less of a people pleaser now mm-hmm. than I used to be. And you would think that if you're running around being a people pleaser, you would have a great marriage because you would be making everything awesome all the time, but it doesn't Which work that way. you're super resentful. Yeah. <laughs> <in the time. laughs> so you're a little bit angry too, if you're a people pleaser. I say this because I'm I am, I am a, a people pleaser in recovery as well. <laughs> and And that is definitely just as hard to change it's as as any other coping mechanism it's again, it's that symptom of not feeling safe and i and this came through in in both of your stories in the book that you didn't feel safe to just be yourself. you didn't feel lovable, you didn't feel worthy so in order to write this book, obviously you had to get there, and I found it so interesting that in in the book you don't even meet until halfway through the book that to me tells me that this was written by people that have done a lot of work and healing because it it showed you what all led up to what went wrong how did you look back and see all of that and do you could you rewrite this book again like have you learned so many more lessons about yourself since writing this book and looking back, do you like do you do you want to stick pages in there of new realizations that you've had, or do you feel like it's definitive and done?
2: I'm gonna go back to songwriting for <laughs> about probably the next ten years. Sean's
1: never doing another book, so this
3: is a hard no for him.
2: No, I've only got that. That's the story I wanted to tell. The rest I'll uh, I'll go back to the away from the prose and back to the poetry, I think. You can say a lot in a song and and the book is littered with songs. There's 16 in the book.
1: Yeah. And Um, it's, it's a beautiful addition to the book too. It's, it really is like having little, little notes stuck in the pages and illustrations. And it, it does bring the story out in such a rich way. I enjoyed that a lot. Yeah. It was purposeful because that's, you know, That's
2: who I am. Those songs are, that's who I am. And, you know, that's who I'll return to, but I thought it was important. This was a challenge for me. It was really hard in many ways it wasn't, it was just another big step in my recovery to get through it. And, um, you know, I just, I have faith that it's, it's not, it's not that it's not over yet. Like this book is still has a path to follow and I hope it has lives to affect. I hope and believe that it will, it will last longer than, um, the life of a normal book. I think it has a place in people's lives. I think the, For lack of a better word, that the story is somewhat timeless. It's Mm -hmm. the story of a lifetime. Now our life is not over, thankfully, (laughs) but this is the part that that we have to share because it's important. uh, There's important messages and lessons here that I stick by, and um, I I mean I hope it finds its its audience. I hope it really. uh, We're gonna this pandemic and to bring back that to the forefront. There's gonna be years of healing necessary mm. and there's going to be scarring and this book is all about healing and scarring and using useful practical tools like music and and love to overcome these things so um I don't know if that answers your question
3: You didn't but I'll answer I tend
2: to <laughs> I tend to get off topic sometimes
1: That was a the question
2: like, in my head is usually not method. the question you asked <laughs> But Andrea is here, and she's going to answer the. I'll question.
1: answer the
3: question. <laughs> I don't think that it was. You know, it's not. Of course, there's pages and pages more that we could now, as you said, fill in, having learned what we learned in the process in this process. But that's kind of what life is, right? It's it's you take a snapshot of it, and that's what this this story is. It's a snapshot of a time frame when you have to relive it to write it, and you have to talk about it then. You know you're not as in the moment, so you can sit with it a little bit more and you find a little bit more peace and a little bit more space in it and find maybe a little bit more grace in a situation whereas before it was like no it's it's certainly just this way, but now, in retrospect and with time and patience and clarity, you can find a little bit of healing in it, and so yeah, we would definitely have a lot more to say but i I would stand with what Sean Semi said in his, in his little statement <laughs> about it's, you know, it has its job to do and that's, and that's what we needed it to do. So I think Sean can be an an amazingly effective human being on this earth with his music now
2: mm-hmm. and
3: with this as his weapon, you know, this, if you think of this as a guitar, as a sword and, and the book as a shield, I think that those two things are super powerful and of course, I'm right next to him on my trusty steed. She loves so. me so
2: much.
1: <laughs> that is beautiful. Oh.
2: The book um the book has some heavy lifting left left to do. Like I hope it gets to do that work. Uh, you know, the pandemic has thrown us all for a loop. And one thing it's taught me is that uh the future is unwritten. You know, we don't we as addicts especially attach ourselves to things. Um uh, alcohol. Well, I was going to say booze or anger or, you know, we get get attached to things and we cling to them, secrets. Mm. And, uh, you know, we – but this is a time where it's really we have a vaccine, we have hope, but we don't really know what the next world will be like because this is a game changer, right? So Mm. we don't know and we can't pretend to know um, how the world will be next month. You know what I mean? And I don't, I'm not trying to be scary or anything. Yeah. It's just that we're... Ease up, man. We're in a time <laughs> where when I say the future is unwritten, the future is unwritten. Uh, I mean, just practical things like trying to pick a day, a line in the sand on a calendar when I'm going to go out and do keynotes again or concerts right. again. Right. Impossible. Mm-hmm. So, you know, people like me, I'm a control freak, you know, and... Uh, what? Yeah. And most <laughs> addicts are, by the way. Um we, it's very difficult. And I think the, the book is still has the power to speak to those, to that uncertainty. And if it can teach people how to live with uncertainty, mm. that would be a huge, a huge win for me and, and make it worth it. You know? So I hope it gets to do that work. That's hard work.
3: Yeah. There's going to be a lot of pain and pain coming up, I think, from for a lot of this people. This book
2: has got a lot of good work to do and I hope it gets to do it.
1: That is the beauty of this Medium, really, is that mm-hmm. it's there in perpetuity it's available forever uh yeah. it'll certainly be on my bookshelf for a long time to come and and just uh, your words will just resonate with me for so long because there uh, there's so many overlaps in my life uh, as a person who's been through addiction and and come through it i mean that I've, I've, I have yet to talk to another person from any walk of life that tells a story of recovery that I don't relate to. So there's that in itself. And yet there's just so many ways that you put things that really spoke to me in, in ways that I, I didn't expect. One thing was both of you talked about your Catholic upbringing and For me, as a kid, I only went to the Catholic Church when we were visiting my grandma because the rest of the time we didn't go. But as far as she was concerned, we were good Catholics. And what I loved about the Catholic Mass was that there was this little square book, and it told you every single thing that was going to happen, right? The little monthly book. We didn't know our way around Mass all that well, so we had to follow along in the book. But I loved it because for the next hour you knew exactly what to do to be good, right? Do this, say that. The priest is going to say this, then you're going to say that. And then we're going to, we're going to do this reading. And then you're all good. And as a kid, you know what? I thought I was having a religious experience because I loved church so much. And it wasn't until years later when you know, for my own reasons, um, my illusions about the the church came crashing down, and I realized that what I was was a very anxious, scared kid who was relieved yeah. for an hour to have someone tell me how to be good, wow, and and what was going to happen, what to expect, and the power of that that realization. You know, it was a huge loss to to realize that. I wasn't having a religious experience. I was having an anti-anxious experience, right? right. <laughs> and I had to really redefine what religion meant to me because I really felt like I was a religious person and I had this close relationship with God and that when I realized all of that was sort of an illusion, I had to come back to kind of sift through the rubble and decide what I believed in and find out whether there was anything true. And um and decide what spirituality meant to me. Now, you don't address this in the book, but have you landed on that in some way in your own life? Is there room for that in your recovery? Does the absence of it mean freedom to you? What does it look like for you now?
2: Well, as an indoctrinated Catholic, I took me a— I mean, I'm a Catholic in recovery, and I still remember all the prayers and like like every single line. Uh, I was not catholic light; I was hardcore. So I had to kind of um peel back a lot of layers over a long time. And but I do believe that there's more to us than blood and bone. I think there's a lot more to us than that. And I think that music is um is proof of that because that's the one thing you just how do we how do we explain where that comes from? Mm. And uh while religion a lot of world religions not just the Catholic religion claim to have the answers to to questions that really have no answers. And they address our anxiety about these uncertainties by by giving us the answer, you know, make, by making one up. But you can surrender your your reason to that and not worry about it if you accept that life is uncertain, uh, which is a difficult thing to do. Uh, and you open yourself up to that uh, to this the, the future that we can't know. Then music, things like music, make a lot of sense because they can address your anxieties. And enable you to to figure stuff out on your own, and to and to form your own spirituality. And I think I think for me, any you know, I do believe in spirituality, but I think it's a personal thing. And the reason I didn't get into it in the book in, is because, and I, I'm, I'll always talk about my own. It's that you know, everyone should have their own. It shouldn't be led by a church or a leader someone outside yourself. It is something that should come from within. And in the context of music, this is the thing that we can share outside of ourselves in a connective way that really makes sense and binds us as humans, no matter what we choose as spirituality personally.
3: Hmm. I was Catholic light. That was really beautiful, <laughs> by the
2: way. <laughs> I thought a lot about the religion thing. I,
3: I want to acknowledge that that was a really beautiful Way of say, saying that music is your religion. I think that's what you were trying to say.
1: Am I right?
2: Yeah, music is my religion from now on. If I'm going to have one. Then,
1: John, would you have said that about music when you were performing in a party band? Was it your religion then, or was it a mask or a, a mm-hmm. something different? What role did it play then versus now?
2: Well, I've thought about this actually, and and point. music has always been. Yeah, I think it was a big, powerful, like I was into it at the time, you know, and, uh, but my spirituality then was, was nowhere near as evolved or advanced. So I think music, when people ask me what kind of music I like, it really depends on how, how, like what I'm listening to right now. It changes from day to day and it goes, you know, generally based on the speed I'm going at in my life. And at that time, my I was going really fast downhill as fast as i could and when i look back at the music i was making it was the perfect soundtrack for that so as much as it's you know i've evolved away from the, the those songs okay. were all about drinking well i believed at the time that drinking was going to be my salvation hmm. you know so it it wasn't uh, it wasn't insincere i mean i do talk about the brand and we we definitely had a plan to sell the kitchen party and for You know, but the very beginning of the band, which I still remember quite fondly, uh, when we started in the small little bars, and I'm talking 100 seat people in a bar and not the hockey rinks, which I never liked. There was an intensity and an energy there that was genuinely, I would have to say, if not spiritual, then certainly reaching towards something. It was uh, out of body experiences for sure. And it was definitely influenced by alcohol and drugs. And it's definitely not where I am now. But in answer to your question, yeah, it was still music. Music was there for me then, and um, you know, it was up. It was up. You know, I, I don't think I lived up to my side of the bargain there. Hmm. I could have done better, and I hope I am now, because music was always around.
3: I've never heard that question asked that way, uh, and I thought it's fascinating for me to hear him say that.
2: I get a lot of it. a lot of people are like, how can you bash your former work? And I'm like. I have an inside knowledge of of what actually went on. So I have an advantage that fans don't have, but uh, I mean, they're not wrong when they say like a song like Ordinary Dage really changed their life, you know, and I, and it's a good song.
3: Well, and it it had a moment in their life for maybe a positive moment in their life or something meant something for them.
2: Yeah. I mean, I joke about how many hangovers we were responsible for, (laughs) but there was lots of, uh, I mean, we probably pulled people out of some dark places too. None of that occurred to me at the time. Right. And again, it it would only it took it took us four or five years to get to the point where we were. When we started to make a lot of money, that's when we started to pay less attention to the music and more about the brand. Got it. But at the beginning, when we were in these dirty, crappy little bars, there was power in it, and it and it was enough power to to give us a twenty year career, which is a, which is really something, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, I think it's a it's a power that we squandered and I can only speak for me, but I wish I'd lived up to my end of the bargain because music was was there for me. And, you know, it could have helped more than I let it.
1: But I'll tell you what, well, first of all, I, I wanted to say that I covered lots of your songs when I was singing, because it, it was just such great music. I didn't do it justice, but I think it just was such happy music for so many of us. But what I learned on stage was that, when you're playing to a live audience you're experiencing the music with them so you can see if you're making their toes tap you can see if you're making them happy because you're having an experience together and if you play a sad song and you make them cry you're 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 both experiencing that together but as soon as you start releasing your music uh, in those days on CDs Then people would say to me, oh, I have your CD in my car and I I listen to it when I'm driving to work. And it was the first time I felt, oh, my God, I'm not in control of your experience of that song. I don't get to tell the story I always tell before I play it. Like, how will you know how to listen to that song without me guiding you through it? And it was a strange, uncomfortable feeling for me to realize that my music, I'd lost control of it. It was out there having a life of its own with people that I wasn't a part of anymore. And I felt really disconnected from the whole experience of the listener and of my music. And you you said you're a control freak. And the control freak in me did not like that. I like to be on stage controlling how they experienced me and my music. Someone said to me in those days, Another musician said, Don't get famous, it'll ruin your life. If you love if you love music, just lay low and keep playing your tunes. And around the same time is when Eddie Vedder left Pearl Jam, and he said, Being on stage as a solo performer is like brown shorts time compared to playing in a band, because it's you and your words and your emotion. And, and there's no one there to, you know, hide behind, or the audience doesn't look and say, like, oh, who are you singing? Uh, which one of you wrote this song? You know, they know it's you. So how are you feeling now as a, a solo performer? You know, you talked about those songs being snapshots of your life then. You were a party guy then. Now these snapshots are, are your truth and you're recovering. You're You're standing alone on stage telling that truth.
2: Well, I mean, I feel so much more empowered by them now. I mean, I've changed my messaging and I've focused more on truth. And I know that the stuff that I do now, especially live, which I miss dearly, has a real physical and visceral effect on the audiences I'm in front of. You're, and you're you know, having
3: that connection.
2: Oh, yeah. And it's, but I'm not, I'm not singing songs like, have a drink. You're okay. I'm okay. Let's have a drink and forget it. I'm, <laughs> I'm singing, let's, no, let's get down to it. And you know what? Don't worry. You can be, it's okay to be scared, but we're going to get through this. We're going to walk through the fire and we're going to come out the other side because that's how strong we are and it's a very uh, it's a challenging situation to be in i think but the, the the lessons i learned in great big c were how to engage an audience how to write an anthem how to lift people out of their seats and i and I've, i i still do that you know and the power of one vu- you're you're vulnerable you don't have all this stuff at the end of our career we had so many things triggers we had so many supports in case we screwed up mm. you know our, the machine ran itself but it was a machine. And now I'm alone on stage. I got a light. If I'm lucky, a <laughs> microphone and a guitar and a drum, and that's it. And I tell you, man, there's nothing more scary than that. And I love it. I love it. I wish we had, and that's what I, as I remember the early Big C days, that's all, we had nothing. Yeah. We were just brazen and we wrote simple songs. That's why you could play them. You know, Uh, because we could, because we couldn't play anything. That
3: you can't play well. I know three chords,
2: three chords, and the truth. Three
3: chords and the truth. (laughs) That's right.
2: Well, for a long time, I played the three chords. Now I play the three chords and the truth, and it's just way better. It's that much more better.
3: I, I think also it's important. Now you get whatever you give to the audience, you get back, and that's your meeting. That's where you go. To get filled up when Sean's on stage when he comes like he can be having we you know we have our domestic days where we're like we don't like each other get out of here I mean I don't say that I think it and
1: yeah you never say <laughs> does it show on her face Sean <laughs> right
2: now
3: there a, there's a look there's, a look, there's <laughs> always a look but he comes back and he's in such a better mood because he's gotten <sighs> that give and take from the audience and he's gotten to receive what they were. Giving back to him, you know, it's just that it's, just, it's whatever that works, right? I mean, connection. I, yeah. I
2: haven't. People always ask me what's the program, and I, I, just haven't tried it. I've tried a bunch of things, you know, whatever works. And I think, you know, if you look at it, what I do for keynotes and uh, musical keynotes is what I call them. I don't have a script or anything, and I don't have a set list for my shows, but they, they've become my meeting, my program, my therapy, my sponsor, all those things, and it works for me. I guess I'm lucky I found I was able to evolve into that because I can't imagine, I can't imagine not doing that. Mm. You know, I just can't that. Cause it, it's, it's not, it's no longer, it's li- far less about the concert yeah, and far more about what really is going to happen in that room yeah, and who's like, going to feel what. Like, you it's like
3: getting up there being scared and not knowing what's really going to happen.
2: And you know what? I have to admit mm. it. I mean, literally the last, 15 years a great big C there was no there was no change in the set list Mm. there was no we didn't really have to we could dial it in it wasn't difficult
3: there was no challenge you only speak for yourself you you certainly could dial it in
2: well you just end up doing the same thing every night it was very scripted and it was and it was the same set list for 15 years and that in in itself is 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 a difficult prison to get stuck in uh I don't suffer from that anymore you know and it's uh it's like walking the tightrope every night. And if you don't feel nervous and terrified, then you're not trying hard enough. <laughs> you, <know? laughs> you need to step in a little deeper into the pool.
1: <laughs> well, you know, I really think that for me being on stage was to keep the audience at arm's length. And when I got sober, I quit performing because it I I couldn't stand the stage fright anymore. I like Sean. And to it's the opposite it's so interesting but I I feel like instead I'm I'm here on this side of the mic and I'm holding space and I'm really telling the truth and I feel really safe and grounded and authentic in it and for you to find that in doing musical keynotes and in being a solo performer whose songwriting is your truth is just such a beautiful gift and I sure hope that I get to be at one of your performances one of these days before too long because, uh, I'm, first of all, because that would mean the pandemic is over <laughs> and we'll all be really happy about that. But I just was so moved by the power of, of your message and your truth and by what you're giving the world in making the effort to tell this story. I know it isn't easy and uh, it, it's changing lives. So I, I thank you sincerely for that.
2: Uh, thank you for, you know, reading the book. It really means a lot of difference to us. It yeah. means a lot. And, you know, I will be coming to Alberta and you'll be the opening act. That's it. Oh. <laughs> You're going to have to duet you me. That's what they do on TikTok, right? Oh, right, my goodness. Right.
1: <laughs> the TikTok. All no right. No one's off okay. the hook.
2: No one's retired. No one is it's all back deal. to work. No
1: one's retired. Okay. Yeah, I've got a banjo-laley that I got for Christmas. banjo-laley? <laughs>
2: so oh, that's a good thing to have. I don't even know what that is, but... <laughs> I'm impressed by the name.
1: You need to look that up. You need one. You definitely need
2: one. I need another instrument, don't I, honey?
3: No, he does not need to look it up. But thanks Mm -hmm. for the offer.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's just little, Andrea. It's just little. You have room for it. Before I let you go, uh, tell our listeners how they can find you, how they can get your book, and where they can connect with you.
2: Just email Andrea. (laughs)
1: <laughs> it's true it's true it's all us we're we're a team of two
3: uh com is Sean's website and you know my ad my email is right on there andrea at com. and our book is on that website as well as some other merch I think some digital downloads because nobody has cds
1: anymore I have a couple boxes in my basement so we.
3: too <laughs> we have vinyl. But I think we're the odd man out there, and you know it's sold everywhere. It's sold on ebook. It's sold at all the independent bookstores. It's sold um, at the big bookstores, and you know hopefully we'll be able to see some people once this is all over and sell them ourselves to people.
2: Yeah, that's the plan. It's all going to happen. But yeah, you know, we're unmanageable, so we don't have a manager. <laughs> we don't have any agency. We're, we're a one stop shop. I feel like shop. I
3: am the manager, so it? let's just settle on okay. that. Okay. <laughs>
2: just just talk to her. She'll tell you. <laughs> I'll tell you what I'm allowed to do.
1: Well, it's good to hear your laughter and to to hear the joyfulness in. The way that you interact with each other, it's a beautiful thing. And I'm very grateful for you being here. I'm glad for your recovery because, I I mean, as much as I loved your music all throughout your career, I I even more so love what you're doing for others right now in in shining in your truth. So thank you both so much for being here. Thank
3: you, Jane. We really appreciate
1: it.
2: Thanks for having us. I look forward to seeing you in person whenever this is all over. Me too. And
1: listeners, thank you so much for listening today. Please be sure to pick up a copy of One Good Reason. You will be moved, I guarantee it, especially after hearing the way that they talk and laugh together, just to know that there's just so much joy that lies ahead, even during the hard times. Also, be sure to go on your favorite music provider and download Sean's music, hearing his story and his music adds a whole other dimension to understanding this man and his message. So, until next time, everyone, thank you so much for listening. I'm grateful you're here. Please take good care.
0: I own it, I did that. Not proud, but that was me and when I face it. I take back a little dignity, not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from the power. Of weakness head on. strong just cause you'll keep it on the side It just stays in wait there to rob you of your pride. Turn the light on, turn the light on, you can shine. When you see old I did that, not proud that that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. I'm not looking for excuses, I just want to be free. Power. Oh, you, just on. you don't have to shout it out on Main Street to be clear. You don't need to whisper to confession in ears. The person you should talk to is looking at you in the mirror, and the one who matters. Most can always hear When you say Oh, I not Not proud, but that was me And when I face it I take back a little dignity I'm not looking for excuses I just want to be free From the power you had on me When you say just want to be free